There we go. Hi. I'm Pastor Chris, one of the pastors around here. I know uh, some of you started to wonder if that was still true, and I'm back. And uh, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, I took a couple of weekends off for vacation at the end of December, and then <clears throat> my daughter Berkeley and I went to Lithuania for 10 days. We were invited there to help teach some pastors in a group of churches that came together, um, just kind of about church leadership and pastoring and, and kind of moving to the next level and uh, revitalizing what, what God started there about 25 years ago. It's really an amazing story, and I'm sure it'll come out over time as, as we talk about it. But I just want to thank you. As I, as I was over there, I just thought, I'm so grateful that I uh, that, that I get to be part of a church that really believes in sending people. So, I mean, while I'm over there, the team from Thailand is landing, and we're going over. And so, you know, we say we want to be a church that leads people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I love that we love that we want to lead people wherever they are. So not just us here locally, but internationally and wherever God would open up those doors for us. And we had an amazing time. And, and I, I don't mean just because Lithuania is beautiful. I mean just the time of ministry, Berkeley was able to help lead worship and talk to the youth groups. I was able to talk to groups of pastors. Uh, we didn't realize actually before going over there, it didn't dawn on us. This was a, this was a former uh, Soviet bloc country, and so it was ruled by communism. And about 25 years ago, 1991, they gained their independence, and God used that moment in, his, in their history to also spark a revival that brought many, many people into the church. And, um, and, and what I didn't, didn't sort of think about before I went over is every person I talked to was a first-generation Christian. They have no Christians in their families. They don't know, they don't have a grandma, a grandpa, an aunt and uncle that they can look back and say, this heritage was passed down to me. And for me to say that I was raised in a Christian family and my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were Christians, they were just stunned by that. And like, how is it that you pass this faith from one generation to another? And they were so eager to learn about that and to learn about how they can be more effective. And so it was just an amazing time. I want to thank you uh, for allowing us to go. And, uh, and it was a fruitful time. They want us to come back and they wanted to be sure that I stood up here and said, thank you uh, for allowing us to come. It was wonderful. I told him, hey, I'd love to come back, just not in January. Um, it was cold. So uh, if we ever come back, hopefully it'll be something around May or something like that. But it was a great time. We loved it, uh, loved the people, um, and, and really had a fruitful time of ministry. But we're just really glad to be back. It's been too long, and I am so glad to just kind of get back into the groove with everybody and, uh, and open up God's Word and listen to what He has to say. Just kind of get back to normal, if you will. I, I just I just love normal church life. I just love the, the Word of God and hearing it. And so it just, uh, just thrilled me to think I get to stand up here again uh, this morning and, and talk to you again and listen to the Word of God. So let's do that. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 is where we'll, we'll, we'll start. And last week, over the last few weeks, I hope you've caught up. Maybe you've been gone. Maybe you've been out. And I hope you'll, you'll get online or whatever and listen to Steve, Pastor Stephen, listen to Ebenezer, and listen to Ryan Hartwig from last week, and just, just hear what they have to say and help you kind of you know, understand the context of all we're going through. And Ryan ended last Last week, where he was talking, and 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 you know, he needed to wrestle with this whole idea of Jesus's relationship to the law of the Old Testament, because Jesus says very plainly, "I did not come to abolish the law; I came to fulfill it." Right? This is, I am not going to erase one little pen stroke of the law. There is nothing about me that sets myself against the Old Testament law at all. 
I came to fulfill it. I came to show you what it really means, okay? And there's this key verse in chapter 5 where, where, where Ryan ended last week, verse 20, where he says to his disciples, guys, ladies, everyone, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't go to heaven. You will not be in the presence of God. You will, you will have an eternity, eternal destiny apart from God. Now, you've you got to think, this is, wow, that, that that's a, that's a, seems like a, a very heavy requirement. And you have to understand, this is a key verse now because pretty much everything from here on out is going to interpret that. Everything we hear in the Sermon on the Mount is going to be flowing out of this one statement. Your righteousness has to go farther and deeper than that of the scribes and Pharisees. See, we're talking, we've called this series Keep Christianity Weird because if Jesus is saying anything in in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that Christians, we must be different. There must be something unique about us. And it's got to be unique over against the secular culture. Christians, there must be something different about us. We don't let the secular culture, you know, set our agenda. We, we don't let them interpret Scripture for us. But he says he's also going to set it against the religious culture. See, Christ is not in the camp of irreligion or religion, mere morality or relativism, however you want to call that. He's in the gospel camp. And that is a whole new third way, a whole new way of seeing life. And the way the gospel informs us and opens our eyes to see things. This is what it means for us to be weird. This is what it means for our, our uh, we, we live in this category and this is how we become strange and aliens and as Stephen just wrote and, and read to us. So, so Christ says, look, here's what I want. I want your righteousness. It's got to surpass religion. It's got to surpass irreligion. It's got to go deeper. It's got to go farther. So, so one of the things we learn is that Christ didn't come to destroy the law. He came to deepen it. He came to say, I'm going to push it further. I'm going to show you what it really means. Now, here's what's going to happen. We're in starting in verse 21, we're going to read, you've heard it said, but I say. And he's going to do this six times in the remainder of this chapter. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Over and over again. What's he, what's he doing? Now, before we get into the particulars of verses 21 through 26, I want to say, I want to figure out what, what is Christ doing in this, you've heard it said, but I say. What's this kind of interchange? What's he driving at? So I want to give you some principles before we get into the particulars of, of this passage, okay? Uh, trying to figure out what these six statements are driving at. Okay? And he's going to quote the Old Testament almost every time or allude to it in some way. And what's he doing? What are you doing in telling us this? Well, uh, let's, let me show you three things. First of all, he's not correcting the Old Testament. He's correctly interpreting the Old Testament. Okay, in other words, he's not saying, remember how Moses said to you this or whatever, this writer in the Old Testament didn't quite get it right. I'm here to set him right. Moses, sorry, pal, you got it wrong. I'm going to now tell you what he meant to say if he were saying it right. He's not saying that at all. He's saying the way it has been interpreted to you is wrong. You've received a wrong interpretation of this passage. Now, that is really crucial for us to hear this. See, because there's all kinds of people that go, you know, well, 
That's what, that's your interpretation, right? We, we kind of tend to think that we can interpret and twist scripture and make it say whatever we want. You understand, every heresy in the world came out of the Bible. Nobody just goes, it's, it's, it's not a heresy if it doesn't come out of the Bible. It's because they take the scriptures and they twist them. Every, uh, every cult is, is, a, is a distortion, a perversion of Scripture. They use Scripture. They will open up Scripture. A Jehovah's Witness will come to your door and they will show you Scripture. A Mormon will come to your door and they will show you Scripture. You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus is saying there is a right way and there is a wrong way to interpret Scripture. Not everyone is right. Some are deadly wrong. See, let me just say something. This is one of the reasons that at Foothill Church, I'm not, I'm not saying we do it all right. I'm not saying we never made a mistake. I'm saying this is why we preach the way we do. This is why Ryan ended in verse 20, and I'm picking up on verse 21. It's called expository, expositional preaching. That is that we look at the test and say, what does it mean in context? And now let's try to explain the sense of that meaning in our preaching. Not, I want to decide what it means, put my meaning over on top of it, and then kind of bring you whatever. I don't, we don't preach topically. We don't, we don't want to grab things out of context and you just go, well, I guess that's what it says. No, I want you to see in context, this is what it's saying. And Jesus says there is a right way to interpret Scripture and there is a wrong way. In some ways, he's going to say, I'm going to show you the right way. Okay? So he's not, he's, not, he's not correcting the Old Testament. He's correctly interpreting it. But the second thing he's doing is he's, he's saying, look, God is as concerned with the action, the behavior, as he is with the heart behind that action, the heart that led to that action. This is, this is so crucial for us to understand. We talk about this all the time, that what we're after is the heart, right? So is God concerned about murder? Is he concerned about adultery? Is he concerned about all these sins? Of course he is. But what, what he is as concerned about is the heart that leads to that behavior. He's, he's saying, I don't really care if the behavior comes about if... What's in your heart is the very thing that leads to that behavior. It doesn't matter that you actually manifest the behavior. I'm looking at your heart. And we, we do this, right? We, we look at the outward, God looks at the heart. And he says, I'm looking at your heart. See, both religion and irreligion look at behavior. I'm good, right? I, I behave right. I, I do what I'm supposed to do. Irreligion, same thing. I just look and say, that's a good person. That's all that really matters. God doesn't matter. And the gospel comes along, Jesus comes along and goes, no, God looks to heart. In fact, God is, I think we're, it's legitimate for us to say God is more concerned with who you are internally, where your heart is internally, than he is with, with your behavior externally. And you know why? Because, because your behavior always, always gushes out of your heart. Every time. Say it another way. You cannot outrun your heart. You can't. The behavior always comes from that place. So if the behavior's good, but the heart is bad, Jesus says the same thing. 
I still see the sin there. I still see this thing. This transformation hasn't taken place. There's got to be an internal transformation. See, he's saying, do not settle. Don't settle for mere behavior. Never. Moms and dads, don't settle for mere behavior. It's so easy, right? When, you're, when your kids are young, what are we doing? We're trying to teach them right behavior. And that's a good thing to do. But you've got to be careful that as they grow, you don't stay there. You're not satisfied that 15-year-old Johnny is just behaving well. You must be desperately, deeply concerned about the state of Johnny's heart. Because if you've got a heart that says, I don't love God, but an external that says, looks like he loves God, you haven't created a Christian, you've created a hypocrite. And he's saying, I don't want that, right? I want you to go after the heart of Johnny. See, a goat can act like a sheep, right? Can run with the sheep, can bleat with the sheep, can eat like the sheep. Is he a sheep? He's a goat. Right, that takes like an utter transformation. You can act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, walk like one, dress like one, speak Christianese, all these things, right? And you, you can still not be a Christian. So we're not, he says, I, I want you to see, y'all think that God is just sort of obligated to like you and, and, and move towards you because your behavior's in line with what he says he wants, but your heart's out of alignment. And he says he is, he is as concerned, if not more, with your heart, with what leads to that action. See, we tend to view our Christian lives mechanically. I don't do certain things. I do other things. And as long as I do those right things, don't do the right things, I'm Okay. God says, no, I'm looking at motives. I'm looking inside. I'm looking, have you been transformed from the inside out? See, that's where real change takes place. Real change is because God actually transforms our hearts. That is, he gives us new desires. He gives us new affections. We have new loves and we have new hates. Right? We have those sins that I used to love, I now hate. I hate it when that happens to me, right? This is what God does. He says, this is what I'm trying to push into your heart. See, we congratulate ourselves when our external behavior, when we don't. Hey, I, I don't murder. I don't get drunk on the weekends. I, I haven't had sex outside of marriage. I'm good. And God says, have you looked inside? Have you, is there envy? Is there jealousy? Is there pride? Is there anger? I'm, I am as concerned about that stuff. That is just as sinful and he wants to deal with that. So that, that, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm not correcting the Old Testament. I'm, I'm correctly interpreting it. I'm, I'm, I'm showing you that God is as concerned with the heart behind the action. Then the final thing he's going to tell us, and I think the principle we're learning, is that he's saying, look, look the, these laws, these ethics, these rules are not an end in themselves. In other words, Christianity, the goal of Christianity is not just conformity to rules and regulations and behaviors, right? This is why some people stay away. That's why they think, they think this is what makes Christianity weird. That is not what makes Christianity weird. What makes Christianity weird is not that we don't commit adultery, that we don't murder, that we don't steal from people. No. No, Mormons 
don't do that. Muslims don't do that. Jews don't do that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't do that. That makes us no different. What the law, what the rules, what the regulations, what all these ethical standards that you'll see in Scripture are meant to do, all that is pointing us to knowing God. Who is this God that we serve? Do I love him? Do I follow him? We're not asking ourselves, like, you know, am I doing all the right things, right? If I do this, if I don't do that, then I'm good. Me and God, all is well with us. No. We're asking questions like, man, how's my relationship with Jesus? Like, do I, do I know him? Am I pleasing to God? So that when we put our heads on the pillows at night, I'm not assessing my Christianity by saying things to myself like, well, Chris, did you murder anybody today? Nope, good. Did you cheat on Michelle? Nope, good. Did you steal from somebody? Nope, You're, then, hey, you know, all's well. No, you know what we do? We put our head in the pillow at night and we say, was God supreme over my life today? Do I love him more today than I loved him yesterday? Is he the sun and I orbit around him, not I'm the sun and he orbits around me? Is that my life? See, in other words, I don't evaluate my Christianity in light of a mechanical code. I evaluate it in light of a relationship. And by the way, I would say this is the way any, everybody, you automatically evaluate relationships. If we're talking about a relationship with God, we're talking about a relationship with parents, with children. Right? We don't sit down and go, mechanically, did I take all the right? I didn't beat my children today. I didn't starve them. I did, so that means we're good. And well, no, it's possible for you to not do all those things and do all the mechanically right things and you're not having a relationship with your children. What we do is go, man, are we good? Do we love each other? I mean, this is, this, is, this is how we evaluate. Okay, so this is the background. You've got to see this. You've heard it said, but I say, what's he doing? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not correcting the Old Testament. I'm correctly interpreting it. I'm, I'm telling you that God is as concerned with the heart behind it as he is the, 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 the action. And I'm, I'm telling you that all of these rules and regulations that you're going to find in the Old Testament were not meant to be ends to themselves. They are meant to show you God. They are meant to help you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're meant to point you to this wonderful, magnificent, holy, gracious, merciful God that we serve. So now, let's look at verse 21. And here's what we can ask. Verse 20 said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you don't go to heaven. So it's legitimate for us to say, okay, Jesus, I want to know what that looks like. Like, can you expound on that? Help me know what you're talking about? Sure I can. Here we go. Ready? So he says, you have heard it said that to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So here's what Jesus just did. You've all heard of the Ten Commandments. He refers back to the Sixth Commandment and says, here's what's happened to you. You have had the Sixth Commandment preached to you over and over again, and what you've been told is that if you don't physically murder someone, then you're gold. Everything's fine with you and God. You're blameless before God. God accepts you. You are righteous. You got no problems. You have not murdered anybody. And you can say, I've kept the law. And Jesus goes, hold on. 
they haven't told you everything. Because here's what they did. They gave you the letter of the law and they didn't give you the spirit. They didn't help you see what's underneath it. See, what Jesus does is he emphasized the spirit and not just the letter of the law. You see this? See, here's what we do. We see the letter of the law, and we are reductionist by nature, right? That is that what we try to do is we try to reduce the commands. We all do this. Reduce the commands so that, wow, amazing. I'm actually keeping all of this. I'm doing the deal. I got no problems with God. God's righteous standards come down to my level because all I do is I think about the letter of the law. And when they come down to my level, lo and behold, I'm, I'm doing them just right. I can, I'm actually perfectly obedient to the law. I haven't, I haven't murdered anybody. I've not cheated on my wife. Right? I go to church. I'm, I'm, I give. I'm blameless. I, I do what I'm supposed to do. I mean, the Bible says the way of a man seems, appears, looks right to him, but in the end it leads to death. So Jesus says, we, we, you've got to understand, pa- Paul comes along and goes, don't you know that a Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Right? It's, it's not, circumcision is not outward and physical. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, Paul says. You've got to understand the Spirit underneath the letter to get to the full understanding of what God was after. So then look what he does. Look at verse 22. So let's get to the Spirit of the law. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See, here's what Jesus just did. He's got these disciples around him and he goes, guys, y'all feel smug. Feel smug and satisfied because you think I've never violated the sixth commandment. But let me pull back the curtain. Let me peel the flesh off your heart. Let's look inside. Let me, let me sh- shine the righteousness of Christ inside your heart. And what you're going to see is that every person in this circle, Foothill Church, every person in this room is a murderer. Because the seeds are there. The seeds of all you need to murder are right there. See, see God says, I, I see the heart. I, I'm looking, I'm looking. At we, we look at the external. God looks at the heart. And God says, I'm peering through. See, now, and did you notice the progression? Look at it again. It starts with anger, doesn't it? Whoever's angry. Jesus says just straight up, like, if you're just angry, you may never commit physical murder. And you're still liable. You still, right, But because there, there, there is this burning anger inside of you. Here's what I know. If I said a certain name to some of you, in fact, I don't even have to say it. I can just mention the idea, and there is someone in some of your heads that you like on a regular basis, it's like a barbecue pit, and you stick them on the pit, and you turn them over and over and over in your mind, and you skewer them, and you, you want to see them burn. You want to see, you, you just seethe with anger. I mean, maybe it's a, Maybe it's a former boss. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's a fellow student. Maybe, maybe it's a mom, your father, a 
child, stepmom, right? And when that name, when that face comes into your head, there is something right now in some of you as you think about it, there is a knot forming in your stomach. Your stomach muscles are tightening and you're like, oh. So if you actually got onto the internet and you, you know they were on Facebook and you found out that they got dumped the way you got dumped, you'd think, yes. <laughs> if you found out they got in a car accident, you'd think, there's something in my heart that delights in that. You found out they lost their job, they're hurting financially, maybe they went bankrupt. But you see what I mean? And Jesus goes, you're a murderer. You've got this thing in your heart that you have not dealt with. But it goes farther, doesn't it? He says, okay, so you're angry. But there's something else. Now it starts to come out in words. And he says you actually hurl insults. And the word for insults there in your Bible is the word raka. And there's really the only translation I can give you that I can think of that would be appropriate in our setting would be you're calling someone an idiot. Now, this is not two dudes going, oh, you idiot. It's not that kind of fun, loving idiot, right? That's not how they're talking. They're saying, I, I literally think you're stupid. I love that I have the moral high ground. I love to feel superior to you. And I love to hold you underneath me. You're dumb. I'm smart, you're not as good a Christian as I am, and I love to make you look foolish. I love when you look stupid. I love when you're proven to be the idiot that I know you are. And Jesus says, that's murder. And it goes further, because then he says, then you say things like fool, and fool you know, we don't use this. You know, we mean, hey, fool, you know, that guy. That, and we don't mean that. In, in, in the Bible, this has a long history. And the word fool, I, there's no other way for me to really describe this, but a fool is someone who is so utterly devoid of any character that they are bound for hell. There is no hope for a fool. And so what you're doing is you're basically saying, I know that I can judge you. I can judge your eternal destiny. I can look and say, you are not worthy. God would never love you. You are bound for hell. We do this. We actually think of people like this. And there's something twisted and perverse in our souls that would actually say, if I could peer down the corridors of eternity and know you were going to hell, this person that I roast over and over in my mind again and again, I would delight in you being in hell. God says, you're a murderer. See, Jesus is not just saying, hey, physical, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you ever pulled the trigger. It doesn't matter that you ever plunged the knife. He says, what's going on in your heart is wrong. And then what comes out in your words is wrong. Because we all know, right, the nursery rhyme of sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie. Like, words destroy people. I mean, go ask any teacher who has to sit with young children and listen to the insults. I mean, go ask parents. Go ask children. 
I mean, moms and dads, have you ever noticed this? Sometimes, you know, your, your, your anger gets the best of you and something with your children, and you say something, and you watch their little hearts melt before you. We can crush somebody's spirits. We can so shake their confidence. We can destroy their reputation with our words. We can gossip and kill them. Jesus says, you're a murderer. That's in your heart, and I am just as concerned with that thing than if you plunged the knife, pulled the trigger. If that's going on in your heart, this is what it means for your righteousness to exceed. It's got to go deeper than your behavior. It's got to be something better than just saying, I never pulled the trigger. And this is what makes us weird. Because, go, man, our hearts have to be in line with this. But now watch what he does, because now Christ is going to do something. He's going to go, okay, let's, let's, if you will, get on the solution side. And I want to push you past mere feelings of enmity towards someone and towards actions that produce unity. Okay? So, so, so watch what he does here. We're going to read this a couple of times. I want you to see a couple of things here. Verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what Jesus just said? Je- Jesus goes, look, I want, I don't want a mere cessation of hostilities between people. I am not satisfied just because you say, hey, we're good, we can bear with one another. There's a ceasefire agreement. We'll never be friends. This relationship will never be fully repaired. But you know what? At least we're not one to strangle each other at family reunions. And Jesus says, not good enough. Not good enough. So I don't, I don't want a mere cessation of hostilities. You know why Jesus doesn't want that? Because he says, if you're a Christian, that's not what Jesus did for you. Right? God goes, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my most valuable envoy. And he's going to die. He's going to die in your place on your behalf, and he's going to do this so that you can be reconciled to God so that I can take someone that I formerly would have looked at as my enemy and I can make you my friend. See, here's, here, Christianity is not, hey, now we've accepted Jesus, the cross, and so now we look at God and God's kind of like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk to you later. I, here's what I promised you. Now that, now that we're, you know, you, you've, you've sort of trusted in Jesus, I just won't kill you now. No, he says, now, let's go beyond that. I want to be fully reconciled. I want there to be friendship. He does everything in his power to make that happen. Christian, this is what he's saying to us. It may never work. Do, Do people reject the attempts of Christ to reconcile us to the Father? All the time. Might someone reject your attempts to reconcile with them? Yeah, they might. That's not your problem. You do everything you can to make it right. Christ doesn't want a mere cessation of hostilities between his children, between you and someone else. 
He wants, he's saying, look, if you let me, if the gospel is real for both of you, I did this for you, now you go do this for them. But there's something else I think Jesus is telling us. Look, look, look at verse 23 again and just, just listen. To this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what I think, you know what else I think Jesus is driving at? He's like, look, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want people who try to outrun their responsibility through, you know, these magnanimous acts of piety. I don't want you coming in to church when you know you have something against someone, you know they have something against you. I don't want you trying to replace sacrifice with what I've asked you to do. I, I, I want you to listen to what I have to tell you and I want you, but here's what we do. We do this all the time. So, so we know, I mean, some of you know right now that God is asking you to reconcile with somebody. God is asking you to go and write the letter. God is asking you to, 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 to make a phone call. God is saying, and, 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 and this is shocking what Jesus says. Jesus essentially says this. If you're here in church this morning, church, and you realize there is this person that you have something against or has something against you and you have refused to reconcile, you ought to get up out of your seat right now, walk out that back door, get on the phone, go to coffee, do whatever it takes to make that thing right. Then come back to church. Jesus basically just said, God will wait. And in fact, he says this. Your worship has no value to me whatsoever if you are harboring sin in your heart or you know there is enmity between you and someone else. I don't want it. I don't want it. I mean, just read Isaiah chapter 1 sometime. He's like, look, you just, I didn't ask you to come in and trample my courts. I didn't ask you to just run in and out of church. You think this sort of religious frenzy is what it's all about? He says, you raise your hands. He says in Isaiah, you raise your hands. You know what I see on your hands? I'm looking down from heaven, as it were. I look at your hands, and they're bloody. What a weird thing to say. Until you realize this is exactly what he's talking about. Like, you will not reconcile. You've got this murderous anger in your heart. It's murder. This is what I see. I don't see your worship. I don't see your sacrifice. I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your worship. I want you to get up, and I want you to be obedient to me. But we, man, don't we do this? I've done it. Anything we can do to kind of quiet the voice of conviction, to drown it out, right? go worship and I'll sing real loud. I'll go to church and I'll be around you. I'll distract myself from what I know I'm supposed to do. I'll give a big gift. That ought to appease God. I might even join a growth group. If that will quiet the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my heart, I'll do it. No. There's a story in your Old Testament 
in the book of 1 Samuel where, where God says to Saul, who's the king of Israel, he says, Saul, there's these wicked, wicked people called the Amalekites. Their wickedness is so bad, Saul, I need you to wipe them out. I want you to go, and he calls it, devote to destruction their entire civilization. I don't want an animal living. I don't want you to keep a piece of gold or silver. Nothing. It's all gone. Saul, I'm not sure what's going on in his mind, but Saul goes and says, okay, I'm going to go to the battle. He musters his army. They go to battle the Amalekites, and Saul decides, I'm not going to quite obey God. I'm going to sort of go halfway. I'll wipe them out. But I'm going I'm to keep the, the really good livestock, maybe some of the good people, all the bad stuff, I'll, I'll sacrifice. You know, that, that, that can go to God. But I'll do this. And then what I'll do is later I'll, I'll make this big sacrifice to God and he'll be happy. And the prophet Samuel shows up on the battlefield. And he looks at Saul and he says, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul goes, I'm just doing what Jesus, what God asked me to do. And Samuel says this, then why, why do I hear the bleating of sheep in my ears? Why is anything still breathing, Saul? And Saul goes, well, I thought, I thought I'd take those, that great livestock back and I'd make some big sacrifice to God and then he'd be okay. And then look at what Samuel says. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. So you know what we do? How often does God convict us? How often does the Holy Spirit press against our hearts and say, you must do this? How often do we open up the word of God and it confronts us with our sin and, and God says, I want you to do something. How often is that, is that face in your head and you think, I have got to reconcile, but no, God, please, anything but that. Do you realize the pride I would have to swallow to go do that? Here's what I'll do instead. I'll go to church and I'll give a big gift. I'll, I'll, you know, sacrifice my time to be a part of this ministry. I'll offer God some wonderful sacrifice of my time. Why do we do this? Because we think, we think that God delights in burnt offerings and sacrifices more than mere obedience. He doesn't. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. And Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is so vitally important that you don't let this kind of just wash over you. I mean, this is, listen, th Jesus is getting like real right now. Jesus is saying, look, this is where Christianity gets weird. This is where it maybe gets a little hard, but this is where it's real. This is where you decide, I actually believe this and I'm gonna do something about it. 
There are some of you in this room who have been unreconciled to someone in your life. You have held on to bitterness. There are people in this room, perhaps part of the same church, and you refuse to reconcile with each other. And God says, what are you doing in church right now? I mean, do you think this is what I want? To obey is better than sacrifice. And not, you know, okay, God, I hear you. I hear you. And, and I'll, all right, I'll, I'll get around to it. I'll start thinking about it. Well, good for you. Because look at what Jesus says next. Read, read, look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, what Jesus is saying is say, I want you to feel the urgency of obedience here. This is not something we mess around with. It's not something where you say, hey, maybe tomorrow, and then maybe tomorrow, and then maybe tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. I don't say that to be sensational. That's just truth. None of us are guaranteed another day. Have you reconciled? See, what Jesus is saying in verses 25 and 26, it is, it is urgent for you to be obedient. It's not just something you delay, but he's also saying, look, in a very real sense, everyone on planet Earth is, is on the way, right? That is the journey of our life, and we are, in a real sense, on the way to a courtroom. And we're going to stand in front of a judge in that courtroom, and he's going to look at us and decide, do we owe a debt or has the debt been paid? See, the law comes along in our lives and it makes all kinds of demands. Jesus comes along. You understand, Jesus makes demands. Jesus is demanding of some of you right now, you must reconcile. It's going to make demands of your life. It's going to say you're accountable to a creator. But then Jesus comes alongside of you and goes, hey, let's settle up. I'll settle up for you. Like let, I'll forgive the debt. I'll cancel it. I'll erase it. We can be done. All you got to do is admit to me that you owe me. And, and I'll forgive you. And you'll go and stand before that judge and he'll say, debt's paid. Jesus says, I'll pay it for you. See, here, here, here's what you have to know. There is no sin in the universe that will be just passed over. None. God does not overlook any sin. Just like, oh, just, Chris, I know you did that, but let's, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, it didn't happen. No, he says, Chris, every one of your sins will be paid for. And it will either be paid by Jesus, Chris, on the cross, canceling your debt. Or it will be paid by you. And you will be not let out of that prison until you have paid the last penny. Guess how long that will take? 
forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's his point. Settle up. Don't delay. God is calling to some of you. Listen, this is serious, Christian. Don't you dare let another day pass without doing something. This is serious if you aren't a a, a believer. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Have you settled up with Jesus? He'll pay your debt. He'll reconcile you to the Father. You'll stand before a judge one day and he will declare you innocent. He will declare you righteous. He will pound the gavel and he'll look at you if you are in Christ and say, justified. That's amazing. That's the promise. That's why we don't delay. Let's pray. Father.